There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is the Open City Podcast, a show about the past, present and future of London. It will feature new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. Welcome to the Open City Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about architecture and politics. We'll mostly be focusing on housing because what new homes look like, where they are built and who can afford them is a massive and highly political issue. And yet, despite years of promises by politicians of all parties, these issues seem forever impossible to resolve. We'll be talking to Emma Dent Code, former Labour MP for Kensington, who is also an architectural historian and was one of the authors of the Open House Alternative Guide to the London Boroughs, and has been an opposition councillor at Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea since 2006. I'm your podcast host, architectural journalist Merlin Fulcher, and we're joined by my fellow host, Armin Nouri, co-founder of Built Environment Collective, ISOR. Obviously, we wanted to talk about the, the alternative guide to the London boroughs, right? And so Emma, who's dialing in, has written what I think is my favourite chapter in the book. I'm just going to put that out there. And we actually were very lucky. Uh, we did an interview previously with the editor of the book, Owen Hathley, who's an architectural writer. Um, and he gave a really interesting insight on Kensington and actually just London more broadly. He described London as a place where People live cheek by jowl and life and business and all different types of life all happen cheek by jowl. And I think for me, Kensington is probably one of those places where that's, that is in many ways most pronounced. You know, certainly for a lot of people, we think of the, the, the Grand Museum District, the Exhibition Road, the um, Albertopolis, Kensington Gardens, uh, Knightsbridge, so on. Um, but also, I, I think a lot about the West Way and I think about the cool kind of futurism and the bold visions of a post-war Britain that also shaped that place. But for me, one of the strongest images, I used to work at the Royal College of Art. And uh, when Emma Dent Cove was elected to Parliament, it was a late count. And it was only about Friday lunchtime uh, when you, it was announced that you were the MP. And I was standing there next to the Albert Memorial, looking at this big pile of like gold and all kinds of like weird references to you know, so-called great men who created the world. And I thought, this is such an incongruous thing, to think that this area of splendour has now got a Labour MP, which you don't always associate with mega wealth and so on. 
But that's exactly what Kensington is. I mean, Emma, is that, a fair, is that a fair summary of the place? Well, yes. And um, I've got a report coming out actually in a couple of weeks on the, the most unequal borough in Britain. And Whoa. I did some research uh, about five years ago and I've updated it and it's got so much worse. It's unbelievable. In the top 10, we have three of the poorest wards in London. We also have in the bottom, if you like, uh, the three richest wards in London. So we have the richest and the poorest. But so, what does it mean for you? Is that you're an MP who is simultaneously representing those two different places? What, what, what did that actually mean in terms of the work you were doing? They're just people with different interests, and you go from one place to another. Um, I don't like nasty people, but if they're if they're decent people with good hearts, I will talk to anybody. They have their own concerns, but you know, planning planning is always the common denominator, because whether they're living in um, in South Kensington and somebody is trying to dig a double basement is making their life misery or uh, they're living up in the north and somebody's trying to build something hideous next door which is going to ruin their lives or, or they're in overcrowded accommodation or you know damp conditions and i mean certainly a lot of this is like small p small p political stuff um but also some of it ends up being big p political stuff as well i mean you're a, a labor politician um but how did that fit in in a place like kensington because you'd been an opposition member for a long time on the council and then became the MP for the whole place. Wherever they live, I say, it's because I'm a socialist, I care about you and your neighbourhood, wherever you are, whether it's Knightsbridge or North Kent. And they're all equally important. Just some people in poor areas need more help, that's all. Apart from that, everyone's equally important. When you talk about this conflict between it being like the most richest and the most poorest place in London, I actually really think about North Kensington. And that's actually the subject of the essay that you put in, into the alternative guide to the London boroughs. Uh, it is a really, really, really fascinating place. And, it, and you know, if you're not, you're not familiar with it, we're basically talking about sort of Labbrook Grove area, Portobello, but then going north, going like basically both sides of the Westway motorway. Uh, and this is a place which has gone through enormous amounts of change. Not a desirable place in the post-war era. It was there were times when it, you could have even described it as a slum. And then it was like very bohemian, full of all kinds of alternative and artistic goings-ons. Uh, obviously, it had gentrification going on. Uh, even in recent years, it's been described as, as the, the stomping ground of the Notting Hill set, which is like a, a group of basically conservatives associated with David Cameron. Uh, who lives in the area, also uh, George Osborne, the former chancellor who lived in the area. And, and yet this is like a, pay, a place of real tension. You know, it, it, there's, there's so many co so, so much going on. And yet Goldborn is, on various measures, it is the poorest ward in London. It's mm. poorer than Stonebridge in Brent. It's poorer than Northumberland Park in Haringey on, on specific measures, on specifically yeah, yeah. In, income and health and so on. Um, it's poorer than all of those, but our council, um, as I said in my essay, I think they 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 tart it up basically. They've sanitised this poverty, so you can't see it, and, and then, it looks very nice. But actually, the people there are very poor, and life expectancy in Goldburn Ward is dropping. So, Emma, our first stop in your adventures around the great housing estates of North Kensington, as featured in the alternative guide to the London boroughs, is the Henry Dickens estate. I'm really interested to know more about this, actually, because it sounds like it's uh, got not only an amazing history, but a very relevant contemporary life to the conversations that we're having today. Built post-war, 
and this one in particular under the supervision of the local councillor at the time, Henry Dickens, grandson of Charles Dickens. So, you know, you describe it as well laid out, well managed, with generous green spaces and beautiful planting. And, you know, I've looked at the photos online and, you know, it looks beautiful. But, you know, that's not all there is to it. You know, in the text we read that the health deprivation was 65%, child poverty at 57%. That's worse, as you say, than the gorbals in Glasgow. And I guess for me, what I found interesting when I was looking at the text was that it's taken care of very well, but the interventions that the council has implemented have not been at improving the lives of the residents who are clearly in some serious bad situations, but rather making sure that the estate looks good, that the estate feels good. And I think that point about the caretaker, as you talked about, saying that, you know, this is the model estate they show ministers around. That's pretty dark stuff. You know, they're taking ministers around to show the estate, the model estate, but actually it's far from a model estate. It is, you know, it's exemplar for just how bad these environments can be for people and the communities that are around them. Is the Henry Dickens estate the kind of estate which really captures all the tensions and anxieties at the heart of the situation? Yeah, and you, if you go door knocking, and you know, some people are—they're fine. They're managing perfectly well, and some people are are quite quite shamefully, really, really struggling. They're just really struggling, and that makes me quite angry that they can put up all these beautiful palm trees and lovely, um, you know, beautiful. It's beautifully planted, and you think, uh, as I say, they're spending money on how things look, and not on people's well-being. And another place you mention in your essay is the Silchester West Estate. And this was created in 1969 as part of a slum clearance programme around the creation of the Westway Motorway. And it's, it's roughly situated between the motorway and Latimer Road train station. There's four towers, there's some low-rise blocks, and it's all arranged around Wayfleet Square. And really, it's, it's quite a pleasant place. And it's, um, as you describe in your essay, quite, quite admired by the people who live there. Um, but at the same time, up until recently, there had been a redevelopment vision, which was to demolish the whole thing and to replace it with what you describe as neo-Palladian mansion blocks. And what strikes me is that a kind of redevelop- redevelopment vision like this overlooks the value of of what's there, what that is there means to the people who live there. And it's all about wanting it to be something else, but in the very place that it is. So it's hyper-valuing its location. And in this case, this location being its proximity to Latimer Road train station. But perhaps you could describe this process and how it's so sort of intrinsically linked to this idea of marketability and property price uplift. They pimp it in advance and they also do lots of art washing. And you know what? I've got nothing against art. I was at the Royal College of Art as well. I've got nothing against art. Beautiful. It should come from, should come from below. <laughs> if the council come in and they kind of impose all art washing projects on us, you have to watch it because they're art washing in, in advance of regeneration. Art washing is something we're seeing much more frequently in London and it is a very complex layered process. It's not got one face or uh, one aesthetic about it, but primarily we're talking about a process by which art artists are used 
um, in sort of pernicious ways by local authorities and developers to glam up and and, and make an area seem uh, more marketable for the people who are trying to move in there, for example. Well, that must be really hard for the artists because any any artist desperately needs some work. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, funny enough, it was a conversation I was having today with an artist in, uh, in the area that I work in, in Enfield, and, you know, in most cases, in most cases, it is very much... Um, representative of the unequal power dynamics between the artist and the developer or the local authority. And by that, I mean, you know, the artist is very much co-opted into this. And, you know, I would say 90% of the cases that is, that is what happens. However, there are also uh, examples where arts organizations, artists, institutions themselves um, must be sort of responsible for some of the processes they've been part of. Uh, It's something which, we have to be very, very mindful of, especially in a city like London. It's something which, um, you know, when we're talking about yeah. Elephant Castle, Shoreditch, Brixton, you know, these are the, the the new frontiers of corporate gentrification and art is very much, and creativity, let's say, is very much the centre of those. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, I mean, I, I would a lot of people who've moved in around here um, and they moved in as they were moving people out. There's one estate up in Goldborn or just off Goldborn Road, where as they were moving out the permanent tenants, they put oh, in co-op yeah. tenants and many of them were artists and that was deliberate. So they used a co-op where they had lots of artists and some of them I know very well and they're doing lovely work and, and good for them. I don't mind that at all. What I mind is the purpose of it. Because they, as you say, Absolutely. they're being used. And the same happened at Balfour Tower. Um, yeah, people yeah. who actually had their hearts broken when they realised what was going on and how they were being used. Um, yeah. And I know the council, they actually, I have their, their arts policy and that is actually part of their arts policy. It's all out there in the open. They know what they're doing. But isn't that a bit odd? Because I would normally think of North Kensington as being a place of like music and art and being strongly associated with creativity. Exactly. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the arguments that we had when they were they were doing some public art and said, well, why aren't you supporting our local people? We had a five-year argument about this wall. There's a Portobello wall right up at the top of Portobello Road. There's a massive brick wall. And they were they were parachuting people in to do artwork. And I said, you know, this is all beautiful, but what about supporting local artists? And they did in the end. They did, but it took five years to persuade them to sponsor local artists to put up their work there rather than getting in the you know proper artists to come and show people how it's done. There's also a question, I've also found the term local artists very problematic in the last sort of few years as well because you have an area such as Peckham, for example, which obviously has a lot of local artists, but they've been local there for the last few years. And so there have been a lot of initiatives, again, not to, to, to name call, that's not the purpose of this conversation, but a lot of initiatives which have sprung up in recent years who have uh, given space and time and investment into local artists who, you know, have just basically arrived there for university and, and stayed there for the last couple of years and can, you know, can afford studio space there. But actually the local artists who were born there, raised there, lived there, and can't access those spaces aren't are forgotten about. So even that term local and that term artist, those two things we have which need much more interrogation. No, absolutely, exactly. I agree with you. And we have there are some things that where they have actually used people who've been around for a long time, but um, it's not it's not common. And actually, a lot a lot of those people are also activists. You know, a lot of our local artists and musicians are also activists, and they don't want to use them because they're also activists. They want to use people who are more placid. Absolutely. Yeah. I I feel like this really goes to the core of like that whole idea of you know why it's such a divided place and the fact that certain people don't really have a voice or they're not really engaged in any way and it's almost like a fear of talking 
and hearing what someone really might say. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, we have th- this narrative that goes on endlessly about who isn't and is and is not allowed to speak. You know, that is, there is a these people attitude and I will always associate myself when that conversation comes up with those people. I want to be one of those people. Thank you very much. I don't want an us and them. If there's an us and them discussion, I want to be one of these people because they will always say, oh, these people, what do they expect? And I thought, you know, actually, they're your neighbours. They're your neighbours. They're human too. They also put into, you know, they also pay into the the big pool of life and they should be getting something out of it. So don't these people, anybody, don't you dare these people. Uh, You felt that as a borough, Kensington has become more unequal in the last six years. We're talking about the political drivers of that inequality. What has been that? What has been the drivers of those those changes and, and that? I guess, in your eyes, increasing inequality in the area. Um, there, there is a divide, but it's about funding priorities. It's about those choices. And those choices, you know, as I discovered last week, they cut £350,000 of building control over five years. And it's the funding priorities. And in our borough, unlike elsewhere, I've got friends in, in who are councillors and MPs around the country. Some of these other constituencies, they don't have the money we do have the money. We've misspent it. I think it's an interesting topic, though, because some of it does spread across politics and political parties. Some of this is issues which is discussed at local politics and central politics. Some of it isn't at all. There's a lot of the small P political stuff of living in a city, which doesn't really make it into the big P politics of what we form- what we formally think politics is. And as a result, the big P politics fails that small stuff, Right. I think, Merlin, I'm glad you brought that up because it's, uh, I think, helpful for the, the listener to get a sense of what we mean by big P and small P. Yeah. We have the a city, the built environment is a contested space. It is the product of competing visions about what is a good city. And that, you know, takes place hour by hour, takes place month by month, takes place year by year. And so we have, for example, somewhere like the embankment, which for cyclists is now a heaven, right? Is they can finally go up and down the Thames with the wind blowing in their hair, you know, straight from uh, St. Paul's down to Westminster, super. But obviously for cabbies and for maybe for car drivers in general, you know, it's not something they want to take, uh, they see in their city at all. That translation into then the sort of the big P politics, which is how that then influences policy. We're talking about Labour, we're talking about Conservatives and the sort of, the, the funding allocations, as uh, Emma's just referring to, is that transition yeah. and understanding how those two speak to each other. Yeah, I mean, one of the huge issues when I when I um, entered Parliament was the the lack of any kind of experience at all of the built environment. So there was me. There were two other MPs who had been planning officers a long time ago, and that was it. And apart from us three. Um, or women, incidentally, uh, anybody else who actually understood about buildings were former uh, firefighters. And there are four or five former firefighters um, in Parliament, interestingly, and I could have a really good conversation with them about buildings. But, but apart from that, nobody wrong. actually understands them. And, it, you know, it's it's the consecutive state, uh, secretaries of state that I spoke to um, in my time there. Um, none of them have a and they talk about beauty, which I think is on the agenda today. Um, but you know what? There are some, if that's the correct word, fabulously wealthy, outrageously wealthy people in Parliament who can't see anything further than their nose and their own experience. They cannot 
see what it's like for, for those people. They can't see it. They cannot step outside their personal experience and see and, and feel what it's like for somebody else. It's, it's clear that, right? And we look at some some stats that I found earlier uh, in the week about that. So we have you know, 20% of MPs in Parliament are landlords. That's 24% of Tory MPs are landlords. Uh, but as you said yourself, Emma, it's not just a conservative issue. We have we see that in, in Lib Dems, 18%. We see that in the SNPs, 9%. And we see that in Labour, 8%. So when we're talking about the people in power who represent us not being representative of us, that's the fundamental issue here, right? So they don't know the issues that the everyday person is experiencing. They cannot speak to the the, the woes and the problems that we're going through. So you could see that in the last election, both political parties didn't really mention community-led housing at all. Um, and so it's, you know, there, there, is not, there is nobody in Parliament giving this voice, but it's an awful lot of people. And also it's a part of housing which was actually born out of the evolution of the experiments in public housing in the post-war era, and it's remarkably successful and remarkably under-recognised. Which is why we need more people who have knowledge of the built environment from whatever level, even if it's all firefighters. We need more people like that in, in Parliament. We really do need people who have that experience. Emma, you've been involved at politics at multiple levels. When we're talking about the emergence of new ideas and new models for delivering housing within, uh, let's say, a London context, that's what you're most familiar with. Is it taking place at any level? I mean, can we can we can we see that kind of thinking? Can we see those kind of ideas coming out at a council level? You know, is there hope for the kinds of interesting alternative models of housing that we'll talk about a little bit later taking place in Barcelona, for example? But in London, okay, there are examples down in Lewisham, and they have a fantastic history of self-building, for example. Uh, but is it taking place anywhere else? Are the ideas being generated within the political system? There's been such a shift in thinking. There's been a huge shift in thinking of, of intelligent architects and planners um, post Grenfell. And I really do think that has made a massive, massive change there. So I think this is where it's happening. It's happening among, among the students, architecture students, planning students, and anybody else working in the built environment. I think that's where the change is. And the ideas are coming from there. So, Emma, I think this is fascinating, this sort of shift in thinking that you describe, because in your essay, in the Alternative Guide to the London Boroughs, you discuss Trellick Tower. And Trellick Tower is a fascinating, very kind of powerful, emotive, very meaningful landmark uh, on the skyline of West London, where there aren't actually many towers. Um, so it was built by Erno Goldfinger as part of the Cheltenham Estate. Uh, it's a 31-storey tower, and it's it's so unique because it basically it features this this separate lift and service tower linked to every third story to the main building. And obviously that sounds quite nerdy, but the effect visually is just something otherworldly when you see it. And obviously it captures a lot of people's imagination, not least the fact that this weird sort of service tower has got a room up there with a, a boiler room and a lift mechanics. And you can see it from the street and you think, what on earth is that? Is that some kind of control lab of the future? 
It's a very futuristic building, but really what it was, it was homes. Obviously, it was homes built uh, by the Greater London Council uh, to be affordable for people of London. Uh, And they're designed to maximise the views and have lots of natural light with big balconies and sliding doors. And what this is, is it's, um, you know, housing is a public good. Now, now there were problems with Trellick Tower and it had a bit of a bad reputation. And some of this might have been to do with the fact that the, the concierge service and the door security wasn't properly followed through by the local authority which then operated it. Uh, But those things are fixed. And the building is now grade two listed and it's had this kind of reappraisal and it's um, it's almost a kind of desirable or kind of much loved part of the landmark, uh, the landscape of London. But but also uh, an example of this kind of modernist tradition uh, being something which is celebrated. But then also that's so contradictory to say... Another thing you mentioned in the book, which was part of the Goldfinger designed estate, which is the Edenham residential care home. So this building really should embody the same principles of the Trellick Tower, should be celebrated by the like the Trellick Tower. But as you describe in your book, the Edenham residential care home was demolished. And that's really interesting because how can opinions shift so much that one thing's celebrated and one thing isn't? Another another nearby building that you mention in your essay in the book is Pepler House. Um and in many ways, this should have the same kind of praise as Trellick Tower, but it doesn't. It's partially demolished and it's quite possibly the rest of it's due to be replaced despite its many merits. Emma, perhaps you could tell us a bit about Pepler House and why it should be kept. It's a really, really interesting, innovative building. Um, the internal spaces in Pepler House are absolutely superb. They are beautifully symmetrical. They have lots of natural light in them. So you walk into a galley kitchen and there's an amazing window which goes onto the street so you can talk to your neighbours outside with windows that pivot, but they also um, open wide so an old person can sit there and chat to all their neighbours all day down the street. Um, But they also have a dividing wall between the kitchen and the sitting room. So half the wall slides back. So you can either have a huge space or a quiet space. And, And all the proportions of it are exquisite. There's enough storage, there's enough light. The whole the design of it is just beautiful. Um, there are people I know who lived there who've been who've been moved into new flats nearby, um, and they are distraught. Emma, what I don't understand, okay, when I listen to you describing Pepler House and why it was so amazing, right. so why is it that this one thing can be so protected, so so admired and respected, and this other thing can just be demolished, can just be just stripped out of the city? even though people live in there and that when they're moved out of there, their lives are destroyed. Yeah, well, that, that's uh, that's because the system doesn't really recognise it. Um, it was more disposable in that way. But we did try to get it listed. We, we went down there with the 20th Century Society in Docomomo and we took we went through the whole process, basically, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't list it. We were going to list it. We, were, we declared a republic, actually, in Pepper House. A republic of Pepper House. We're in all the, all the papers and on telly to try to save it. And I just, want to, I just want to just read something. Something that's quite powerful, which is in your essay, In the Alternative Guide to the London Boroughs, where you talk about what happened when you saw the Grenfell Tower burning. And you're saying hundreds, if not thousands, of local residents, including myself, watched in horror for 18 hours as their neighbours burned to death in front of their eyes. That is absolutely horrific. I think some people don't realise it wasn't like a bomb, which is horrible enough. It went on 
for hours and hours and hours. And anybody, if you can bear to listen to the inquiry, well, the first phase particularly, where, where all that was described with the firefighters and so on, and there were people trying to escape, and, and I can't actually even talk about it because it's so awful. I know I know nearly all the stories, and some of them are just unbearable. Um, but it went on for a very, very, very long time, and it was terrifying for people watching let alone for people inside. And some people are on the phones talking to people as they died. And this is an interesting one as well, when you think about the fact, like collective trauma in cities that we go through, that then then there comes a need to memorialise it. An issue we've discussed on this podcast before, the creation, maintenance and renewal of memorials. But yeah. do we even have the kind of political kind of forums where we can even begin to grasp on what a memorial to something like Grenfell needs to be? Mm. Well, we're going through the process at the moment, um, and because no, because the local population, unsurprisingly, the community doesn't trust the council, they ask the government to do it. But what is happening is the government is sending experts in to tell people what they should or shouldn't want, um, and, and that's made it worse. You know, there's a big split in the community about what kind of things should be there. I've had so many people writing to me and saying, I'm going to plant trees there. It's going to be a lovely orchard or we're going to put... So people just are offering to do things completely inappropriately, thinking they could come in and fix it. And we've had so many people coming in thinking that they could fix it. I understand that it's unbearable. It's been so awful. People want to contribute. But actually telling people how to memorialise their, their family members who plant to death, how dare they, how dare they, it's just insulting. We're talking about fixing things here, and I'm very conscious that we have a broken housing market, a housing crisis that also needs a lot of fixing. And do you feel like with Grenfell, it is it was the moment in which the the housing crisis, the mockery that the housing market is in this city, in this country, is that the moment in which it really came into light? People realised, right, this is something that we need to fix, this is something that we need to solve. Was Grenfell the moment where that came into people's consciousness? I think for intelligent, informed people, absolutely. It smacked them in the face and certainly a lot of the architecture community, people that I've known for years and years and years, because, you know, I was an architecture journalist for 30 years, um, a lot of people would just, you know, they said, I, I had no idea what they were doing to that building or, you know, whatever it may have been. The architecture profession, planning profession, building, insurance people, actually. I met some insurance people who said, we're going to change everything. It's the politicians who will not get it into their heads that this is huge, it needs change. There are two things, actually. One is that it's a massive inconvenience and they don't understand it. The other is, and I was told this soon after I was elected, that they saw Grenfell as more of a threat to the stability of the government than Brexit. And there was that image of, of the Queen going to see it and then a few hours later, Theresa May going and yeah. then both getting extremely different responses. But you know what? They, they dealt with that in a hundred different ways and they've sadly done quite a good job of splitting people up. They call it an unfortunate accident. And I always call it an atrocity. It was an atrocity. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an unfortunate event. It was an atrocity. It was an avoidable atrocity um, because there's a series of decisions that made, made that happen. They, they, they don't want to understand that. So Emma, when I hear you saying that, obviously that, that really tells us how clearly this isn't necessarily something about party politics. It is about the political nature of of this catastrophe and all the things that caused it and all the kind of 
processes that led up to it. And does this come back to what was a political thing, which was moving away from this idea of seeing housing as a public good and instead seeing it as a personal gain? Yeah, absolutely. And early plans they had for some of the developments they wanted to do on our estates actually looked like South Kensington. Why would you want to do that? What does that mean? <laughs> what, is, what nonsense is this? What vision of a city is this? South Kensington is really very nice where it is, thank you. And then there's Chelsea, which is different. And there's Knightsbridge, which is different. And there's North Kent, which is di- and Notting Hill, which is different. Why would you just want to do a cookie cutter and put more there? And that's a classic, deeply unintelligent way of improving people's lives. But is this actually is it actually another undercurrent, which is to basically say South Kensington has this property price value and North Kensington has this property price value, and this is actually about the financialization of what was once seen as a public good, i.e., a functioning city where people can live in homes that don't end up being in a catastrophe, to then being purely defined by the goodness of property uplift. Yeah, uh, but uh, underlying all of that is this idea of the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. Mm-hmm. It, it's, a, it's a kind of lack of understanding of what a community of any kind is, even a very wealthy community. It's, to, it's constructed of lots of different layers, and they are interdependent, actually. Mm-hmm. I'll give an example. There's a, um, a nurse's home in, uh, off Fulham Road, um, which is owned, was owned by the hospital, and uh, the council agreed to let them sell this off. It's all going to be privatised now. So the nurses who live there, many of whom live on shifts, they work on shifts and they're working in intensive care. And I'm talking about people that I actually know. And so they had to move out somewhere they could afford because they couldn't live in a nurse's home, which meant they had to, once they'd left their shift at four in the morning or five in the morning, whatever it was, they then had to get on the tube two hours back when they're completely exhausted in a nurse's uniform. (laughs) So some ended up just sofa surfing or whatever for quite a long time and then had to find a job elsewhere. So we've lost all those brilliant, um, highly experienced people because some greedy so-and-so decided to let the nurses' home go. And obviously, like a word like social cleansing is often put out there when we discuss urban regeneration. It's a very powerful term. It's very, again, very potentially very offensive term. But is this about, is this about reshaping the urban environment also in terms of the actual faces and the people and the bodies that inhabit it? I don't know. I don't understand that well at all. There are um, there are people who live in a teeny tiny world of very wealthy people where they feel comfortable and they don't want to step outside it. Here we are. We're talking about politics. We're talking about city, and we're talking about housing. We're not only talking about housing, but we're using housing to talk about politics in the city. And I find that a very interesting, I guess channel to go through because you know housing should not be political right housing most people agree that everyone wherever you are in the world you need a roof over your head you need four walls you need a decent place to eat sleep and rest um but yet housing is immensely political as you've already been talking about you know who builds it where it's built to what standard it is built whether it's a commodity, whether it's a luxury, is it an infrastructure, is it a right, who can afford it? When it gets to a certain age, would it be listed or demolished? All of these questions speak to the fact that housing is very much political. And we look about, I mean, if we look at the, the, the manifestos of our big P political parties over the last 50, 60, 70 years, 
housing has been front and centre of many of those papers. And, you know, a lot of people go and vote for this party, that party, because of their housing policy. Why is it? Why is that the case? Why is that the case? Why are we dealing with a situation where it is in immensely, immensely political? No, I think it's absolutely fundamental. You know, without without a without a home, you can't function. If you have a decent home, you don't actually function much better. If you have a rotten home, you know, you you're you don't function, and you become ill. A lot of people are in very sub, substandard homes, and and it makes them ill, and that then they can't contribute to society at all. It is so absolutely fundamental to be warm and dry and be able to function. It's a human right. Uh, there is this kind of feeling that it doesn't really matter which political party you vote for, the housing crisis isn't being solved. When we're talking about housing in the last 40 years, we're talking about housing that has been delivered through primarily a financial system, right? We're talking about a financialized housing market. So actually... We're not talking about a political system which has delivered this housing. The political system has, if anything, enabled the financial housing market to be delivered at ease and for profit. So, you know, when we're talking about housing political, we need to move to a situation where it is really the politics and the machinery of that political system delivering that housing. Because otherwise we are left with a situation we are now where homes are not only unaffordable, they are cramped, there's no light, they often have to be re refurbished within 30 years. And, you know, that's, 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 uh, that's when you get into the home and there's people waiting to even get into that kind of unit. So we're talking about a system which is financialized, not um, delivered through big P or small P politics. But, and that financialization has a consequence on the politics of it. And like what I would say is certainly... Yeah, if you look, when David Cameron was elected in 2010, one of the first things they did was to abolish the regional development agencies and to abolish the housing targets, which would have had a lot of housing built in places outside of London, but the places that were growing. And there is a kind of sense that there are big parts of, big parts of the UK tending to be rural places, tending to be places that vote conservative, where one of the main motivators for getting engaged in politics is to block new housing being built right and there's a and there's obviously there's understandable reasons because if you had all of your money tied up in a house in a village or say you're a retiree and you had a fixed income and you felt that this was your your lasting legacy that if so, they don't want to see a new a load of homes being built right on the field next to them and then somehow what they would think would happen would be the undermining of their property value but what you then see is a politics which which exists to maintain the property values across the country. How did this all become political that basically politics exists to serve to maintain property prices? Absolutely. And um, the, the, the issue, more than anything, is the financialization of this market has actually produced worse quality homes. Because money is being extracted for, at every, every level, um, that the, 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 the product at the end of it is a very poor quality. So some of the people who are objecting to having new homes in their in their field next to them may be concerned not only about the the presence of houses but the the you know the quality of the houses if they're rotten houses maybe if they were half decently built they wouldn't complain is there hope i mean we're talking here about a lot of homes a lot of bad quality expensive homes being built in our city 
is there hope? Are there examples that you have found, Emma, or you, Merlin, as well, where, you know, taking place within London, where there are actually good homes being built and there is a different agenda in mind? I'm sure there are good examples out there. There'll be some enlightened councils and the councils should actually be able to, to, to do, you know, have more initiatives and to look after money, um, you know, after that funding themselves. There should be more devolution. If I want to get optimistic about more empowering, equitable urban futures in London. Barcelona is the place that I think of. And for most people, you know, Barcelona, they they think of because of its beaches and, uh, you know, the, the one euro cans on the beach, beer cans on the beach. For me, it's been an inspiring city because of the urban politics that has emerged, let's say, in the last decade. So we have this amazing mayor who, um, you know, came from a grassroots housing activist atmosphere, which emerged really in the wake of the 2008 economic crisis. How is it that they have been able to enter a a period where suddenly the future of the city is looking a lot more exciting? And how is it that us living in London can take inspiration from from Barcelona and actually translate that into the things that we want to see done here? They've always had a proper city architects team there. You know, they have a city architect. That, so uh, David Mackay, who um, who actually did, was responsible through, throughout the Olympic period, was an extraordinary city architect. He had real vision, and it's the vision that we haven't got. Oh, we'll put a building up here, put a building up here. But we don't have a vision for London. We don't have a vision for parts of London. And this is what we are lacking. And that that, that applies right from the, the city architecture um, level all the way down to our um, the, the people putting the buildings up, all our construction workers. Because we haven't trained our construction workers for, for about, you know, 20, nearly 20 years. We've given up doing it over those years. Architects, they... Uh... They're bashed quite frequently. Everyone seems to have a bad opinion of architects, right? But let's let's talk about them in uh, in an empowering sense here. I mean, you spoke about at the beginning of this conversation about more people, more architects, more experts in the built environment entering into politics, right? Now, that's one avenue, right, in which uh, in a more positive, more empowering built environment could be could be designed and delivered. Is it a case, though, that the architects who don't enter politics need to become more political? So if you are working in private practice, should you be going into public practice? Or if you are in private practice, don't want to do that. Do you need to become more political with the kinds of projects you're accepting, with the kind of people you're working with? Is that, you know, where does the answer lie in terms of art, art, architects becoming a bit more political? Yeah, I know. I do agree with that. Uh, I think we are, we have the just the level of discourse generally in politics is appalling at the moment. It's absolutely appalling. People don't want to get engaged. That's also a fault of the education system, but um, the architectural education system as well. I think is lacking. So I think the, the people who I know are who are politically engaged. They did this despite their education rather than because of it. So I think that needs to be broader. I think you know our, our education is failing us actually. And I, I, Emma, I think that people listening to this podcast right now are exactly the kind of people we need in politics. But what do they do? How do they get into it? Because, you know, becoming an MP sounds really hard and I've been told very expensive as well. So, you know, how are we going to get these people in? How we... I didn't have any money. There are ways of doing it. I mean, especially if you're representing the place you live. Um, if people want to get engaged, they have to, you know, just get whatever is driving you mad 
at something that's happening around the corner. You get engaged in, in local politics and then it just... So if you're the sort of person who, who reads the alternative guide to the London boroughs, if you're the sort of person who writes a chapter in it, if you're the sort of person who values this sort of book, you're the sort of person who should be in Parliament <laughs> representing one of these boroughs. But it's, so, it's that... It's that... Is that is that it though? I mean, we're talking here about big B politics, small P politics, right? Are we saying that if you want to be a positive actor within the built environment, if you really want to be driving the change, if you really want to be building the kinds of homes that everyone was talking about in Trellick Tower, light, airy, spacious, access to green space, all these kinds of things, do you need to enter politics to do that? Is that is that the kind of conclusion we're reaching now? Not necessarily, but we definitely need more of those political activists who are intelligent and informed. We need more of them in politics. And we need more people on the outside who are intelligent and informed working with the the politicians. But we do definitely need more people. And I have haven't got a problem with lawyers at all, but we've got an awful lot of lawyers in Parliament. We need lawyers in Parliament, that's for sure. But we need lots of other, other kinds of professions in there too. And architects should be in there and planners and so I need them in there too. So, you know, I, I have um, I have family, um, Spanish family, who were very engaged in their politics, who are architects. And in Spain, it's not so unusual. So I don't know why it's so unusual here. For a lot of people, and I you know a lot of the conversations I've had with friends, it really is that fear. It is a fear of entering mainstream politics, of entering BP politics, and the implications of that for your family, for your own well-being, for your own mental health, all these things. So, you know, what would you say to people like that? You've been a councillor, you've been an MP. What would you say to people who are really motivated, they really care about all the things that we're talking about today, but frankly speaking, they're just frightened about all the implications of, of entering that kind of arena? Well, I would say get engaged in in whatever it is that you're interested in. Get very, very engaged. And you don't have to go all the way. You don't have to become a councillor, which is very, very time-consuming. You get very little out of it. But it's, if you have that commitment, it's very valuable in all kinds of other ways, socially valuable. Um, just, just see how far you want to go because every MP needs good advisors, needs good people working for them. They need a good team around them. You don't have to be that MP, but maybe you would decide to just keep on trying incrementally to get involved in things. And either you stop or you keep going. You don't have to dive in from the outside. And actually, I think some of the people who dive in from the outside um, are, are maybe not, the, not necessarily the best uh, the best MPs in the end, you know, that you need you need a really good grounding in grassroots. There's a really interesting symmetry between solving the housing crisis and also solving this political crisis. If you want to, if you want to definancialize housing, what do you do? You just build more homes. You just build those homes, those good quality homes, and 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 doing that pushes aside all of those vested interests, all those things that we've grappled with in this show. You just do that simple thing, and it should be the same with politics. You just plug away at it. And you just get more people in politics who really connected and really represent and really understand these places. And I'd argue that whatever your, it, whatever your political background, whatever your political persuasion, if you go at it with that gusto, the results will be better for the lot of us because the current bunch of incumbents sadly aren't. So today we've been talking politics, we've been talking housing, we've been talking London... We have gone through the stories of Kensington, Emma, which you covered beautifully in the Alternative Guide to London Boroughs, which 
plug plug you can buy right now from the shop first of all thank you thank you for coming in i was really looking forward to this episode because you know built environment politics those are two of my favorite things what can we leave this conversation with that gives hope that gives optimism that gives excitement to not only me before i go to bed but also to our listeners who want to feel better about the world and i think you know i've taken a lot of positives out of this i feel like not only in the ideas and 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 discussions that we have there are obviously good people thinking about this kind of stuff but for our listeners who are tuned in right now and you know who want to go away and feel more excited about the world what are you feeling positive about i'm certainly looking to people I've known for a long time who have been in architecture and architecture has had good years and bad years. Um, often when things are going through a bit of a lull, they put their thinking caps on it. And so that, that, that is happening. But also I really do believe, even though a lot of people don't see it, that Grenfell had a huge effect on a lot of people working in the built environment at all kinds of levels. And as I say, we, we're, not, we're not necessarily seeing the results yet. But people are thinking and they're reflecting and they're working out better ways of doing things. And I do think that's going to change. Um, and while there's breath in my body, I will make sure that there is change coming. That's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us, Emma. There will be a few people listening in today wondering why in a conversation about a broken housing market, we haven't talked about land. And they're completely right in doing so. Because when we're talking about a housing crisis, we're talking about a land crisis. And in particular, a crisis in how land is owned and distributed. There are a number of architects, artists, designers, writers, lawyers and more increasingly concerned with the question of land and how what they call the broken land contract, the rules and regulations that govern how land is distributed and owned, can be understood to be at the cause of many of the issues that we identify in our modern built environments. This is a quick message to those who are concerned with the fact that land was spoken about today, to let you know that we are aware of it, we are talking about it, we are thinking about it, and we look forward to producing a podcast soon, which dives into the details much, much more. This podcast was brought to you by Open City, the creator of London's largest architecture festival, opening up hundreds of buildings to the public each year. Go to openhouselondon.org.uk forward slash appeal to help the charity that's been hit hard by COVID-19. A big thank you to Massive Music for making our podcast track, to our editor Ed Ryman and our illustrator Claudia Alexandrino, to our podcast host Selassie Satipa, Armin Nuri, Lara Kinnear, Merlin Fulcher, and our producer, Ruby Maynard-Smith, and the Open City staff, Rhea Martin, Zoe Cave, and Sean Milliner. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.